Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. Welcome to uh, Political Rewind. The uh, post-sine-die edition of the show is uh, up right now. Uh, We're glad you could all be here uh, for that. Um, Before I introduce the panel and um, start talking about what happened at the Capitol well into the late night hours, Greg Bluestein, like midnight last night? Midnight, right right about on the dot. On the dot. We talk all the time about sine-die. Uh, I want you to know I got an email this morning. Uh, I didn't ask permission to use this person's name, so I won't uh, give it out on the air. But this is this is someone who teaches high school Latin in Metro Atlanta, and the email says uh, Latin has no silent syllables. Thus, a sine is in fact sine. We kind of knew that already, and it's da. It's not sine die. Uh, I wrote him back and said, yes, I took high school Latin. I remembered <laughs> Lori Geary is here. She's saying me too. Uh, but it's been sine die for probably 60 years or more, <laughs> Greg Blutz. Or more like sine die. Sine die. Well, we appreciate that little Latin grammar uh, uh, email from uh, our friend, uh, high school teacher friend who says he listens to the show all the time. Greg well, Blutz. What, what, what do you expect from a state that says Vienna and Cairo? I mean, we really... It, it is our job to distort foreign spellings. Like <laughs> Do we say Martinez, Georgia? Is it Buena? Is it Buena Vista as well, or That's Buena Vista? In Virginia, I, is Buena Vista. Well, okay. and in Colorado, it's Buena Vista. So you know, there are others. You know. Well, there's Tolliver County. Tol- yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's the best one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is what happens. When people, some of whom are on this panel today, have been up way too late at night covering the legislature. Greg Bluestein uh, was there. He, of course, is a political reporter for the AJC. Were you there till the bitter end? Oh, of course. Midnight? And, just and, about midnight, right? Shortly afterwards. And I saw a certain lawmaker on this panel at a uh, certain um, bar afterwards. Too, oh, so. I wondered that may be Representative Mary Margaret Oliver of Decatur. It's called manuals. Yeah. It's a little bit of a tradition, although they were ready for us. They were not ready. Yeah, they we, they weren't thrilled that we were. No. You didn't violate their liquor license hours, did you? I have no idea. <laughs> All right, Representative Oliver is here with us. Uh, thank you for being here, Mary Margaret. I especially appreciate it after a very late night uh, for you, Lori Geary, former political reporter for uh, WSB TV. Now, I don't know how what to say. You have your own company, yes. Lori Geary Media. Yes, uh-huh. but you're also involved with. Lexicon Strategies, and we're nonpartisan, um, and we do communication strategies and digital and video production. Work with so. Billy Linville, yes, uh, one Brian of the really Tomlinson. great uh, political consultants in uh, Georgia over the years. Another one is Brian Robinson. He's with us, too. He, of course, was the uh, communications director in the first term of Governor Nathan Deal, then went out into uh, business on his own. Hey, Brian. Hey, Bill. Thank you for having me. Well, we're glad to have you. And my business is Robinson Republic, since we're... (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, please, go ahead. I'm glad you said that. Um, We're not in competition. (laughs) No. uh, We also have Dr. Andra Gillespie, Emory University political science professor. And Andra, uh, I'm thrilled that we can now say author of the recently released Race and the Obama Administration, I'm sorry, Substance, Symbols, and Hope, your brand new book. Thank you. Congratulations. Congrats. Thanks. It's going to be a week or so, but my, no, never too early to start promoting it. I think it's on April 17th that you and I are going to talk about the book. You're going to come in. Yes. And we're going to have a discussion about just what you your research showed you about uh, President Obama and all of those things that follow the title right. of the book. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Me too. All right. Um, by the way, another quick note. We are in our temporary studio while they rebuild the, uh, the talk studio that we've been coming to you in for five years now. And many of you who watch on Facebook Live have already been telling us how much you like this setup because 
people can see faces. You can all see each other. I want to assure you that one of the most important things we're doing in the design of the new studio is low mics so that uh, people's faces won't be hidden by the awful crane-like devices <laughs> that we use as uh, mic stands over there. So that's going to be a while. We'll be in this uh, uh, studio, and I just wanted to make sure people knew where they were. All right. So, uh, Greg, a couple of issues that were really on the table till the bitter end last night. The one that we've talked about, everybody's paid attention to, is the state, potential state takeover of Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. The Senate was all for that. The House pushed back hard on that. It was up in the air until the last minute, as was the tax break the jet fuel tax break for Delta Airlines. What happened? Yeah, it was sort of a bittersweet day for the airport, I would say. I mean, of course, uh, the city and the, and the airport did not want to be, have a state takeover, but also its its biggest uh, clients, the Delta Airlines, the largest private employer in Georgia, lost out on an extended tax break. Um, the, the version of the bill would have been 20 years or so, uh, worth about $40 million a year for Delta. Um, so both those were tied together in the final version of the legislation, and that entire final version went down the drain. Well, Mary Margaret, I mean, frankly, we had talked about this on the show during the week. It it looked like this thing was going to end up going up in flames because there was so much involved. There were so many things wrapped up in it that it seemed destined to fail. I have been on the transit commission with Kevin Tanner and Kevin, Kevin Smyre and a bunch of really good people, learned a great deal. I had a tremendous amount of optimism because Kevin Tanner is very strategic and very smart about how he's handled last year's ATL bill and this year's 511 bill. I was going along voting for these weird things because in the middle of it was 511. I well, was, tell people what 511 is. 511 is this year's transit commission yeah. recommendation about consolidations and and coordination of federal transportation funding streams for rural Georgia and some addition of some new money for rural Georgia. It was a focus on those areas that have very little in the way of transportation. It would be very meaningful, and the state was going to commit money from Uber and from Lyft and some other ideas, But and I had confidence that would pass, and I was wrong. I thought the airport takeover, which turned into the committee of irritation uh, at some point, and the Delta tax, uh, I've expected the Delta tax, they rarely lose, and the Transit Commission package for rural Georgia to pass. I never thought the airport committee of irritation would go very far. <laughs> I was shocked that the Delta tax didn't pass despite Governor Kemp's um, support? support for it. Yeah, yeah. So, Lori, it all got bundled together and people couldn't extract one item from the next. Well, I think our first inkling that this airport takeover bill was not going to pass, and I learned down there, if the speaker comes out against yeah. something, more than likely it's not going to pass the House. Yeah. So that was one. But also, now you have to wonder if Governor Kemp is going to do what former Governor Nathan Deal did, which is look for, you know, executive privilege ways of, you know, giving Delta that tax break. <coughs> Brian? Yeah. Think about those that those executive orders as somebody who worked in Governor Deal's office. And when we first came in, you may recall there was a, those summer spikes of gas prices that went super high. And he was able to go in there and and cut that sales tax on gas through executive order, but then the General Assembly has to come in and ratify it. And if it's not ratified, all of that tax that was suspended becomes due under state law. So it can be very tricky as a maneuver. And we don't know if Kemp would be able to get the General Assembly to change their mind. Particularly in the state Senate, there was massive resistance to the jet fuel tax exemption. In fact, there was an effort amongst some Republican rural legislators to raise the jet fuel tax. I, I, let me let me yeah. uh, point out, uh, and then I want to get you into this, under because I want to turn away from Delta, which is, you know, yes, as a corporation, they really wanted this badly. But I think in many ways, the fact the state takeover of the airport uh, failing has bigger impact in a broader way. But but let's just one other item on, on Delta. Um, this would not have been a break just for Delta Airlines. It would have been a jet fuel tax break for all airlines that yeah, use Hartsfield right. Jackson It's not, it's not a Delta tax cut, right. So one of the questions I have about that is, given that we are an airport with very with dominated by one airline, really two airlines, Delta and then much further down the line, Southwest Airlines, it, I wonder how this failing 
while other cities have adopted this kind of thing, discourages more airlines from wanting to come in. No, Mary Margaret says no. I okay. think that we're too big. I think we're too okay. geographically critical. I think the the avoiding Atlanta Airport doesn't seem like a likely right. scenario. And the takeover never seemed realistic. Well, okay, and that's what, Andra, the takeover which many people thought in the long run was tinged with racial animosity, uh, failed. And if you're a supporter of the fact that the city, yes, has corruption, but has done it. But the fact is the airport is an efficient airport. This sounds like a victory. Um, well, I mean, it certainly is a temporary victory. Um, you know, I expect that this is going to come up again in the future. Um, and I think there'll probably be like two tracks in terms of sort of how this issue comes up again. So there was the outright takeover sort of track. And then there was the, well, do we provide oversight yeah. type of track? Um, and so, you know, I would expect that those are going to, to, to come back again. And I think the overall question of what's motivating sort of this uh this takeover and why there is a perceived need to have this takeover, I think is something that's an empirical question that I actually yeah, really hope to it, test at it some It strikes point. me that we're maybe only one or two BJ Pack indictments away <laughs> from this being a big issue again next session. It, it will be. And to the professor's point, I heard from Democrats privately grumbling that the city should have taken the watered down version while they could because- The oversight. The oversight, yeah. which was which which was a little bit more toothless than the state takeover, because this will probably come back next session. We have a Martok oversight committee that's operated for decades. Tell everybody what that means. Uh, MARTA has a state-created committee uh, that has oversight obligations and authorities, doesn't have subpoena power, doesn't have much power. But the airport oversight was something that I think there were some inside conversations with Atlanta this is your friend. This will be an irritation. They will say nasty things, but it is ultimately a friend because you are a partner with the state of Georgia. This is a relevant partnership, financial and political partnership, and this is the best way for you to manage this issue from Atlanta's perspective. I don't think Atlanta heard that advice. I'd think the oversight at a minimum, conversation is going to continue uh, for a long time. What What else, Mary Margaret, were you watching carefully as the hours ticked away last night and either hoping would absolutely <laughs> pass or were make, wanted to make sure wouldn't get through or hoped wouldn't get through? I was pretty fascinated by the marijuana discussion for several years, and the this year's discussion was really getting down to the, to the, to the real deal, in the weeds, so to speak. <laughs> I mean, how many acres are you going to cultivate, and who is going to create the oil, and how is it going to be dispensed? It was a really interesting conversation. We created an opportunity for families who wanted and needed and believed this oil was critical to their children, to their family members, and then we told them it was illegal to acquire it. That was something that had to be solved. And I believe we made real steps towards solving it in the face of the federal government being totally paralyzed yeah. to resolve this. Issue. I think I'm correct, Lori, that it came down to a difference between the Senate and the House, number one, and how many dispensaries. The House wanted about 60, I think, whereas the Senate wanted far 10, and, and how many growers. Uh, and again, the Senate wanted just a couple, and the House wanted more than that. Is that what it really it was, came down it was, to? Um, you know, it was over the private companies was a big issue. And really, the Sheriff's Association really latched onto the Senate and really said, you know, we can't have this. They're still adamantly against it because they believe it, you know, paves the way for a yes to recreational somewhere down the road. But what a relief for these families who many of them have lobbied for five years yeah. and bringing their kids down and showing lawmakers exactly what this medicine does, this oil what, what it does. And kudos to them for really um, getting the attention of the lawmakers and getting to where they needed to be. They didn't resolve the difference in numbers themselves. Am I right, Greg? They instead threw it to a body that's going to resolve this. Am I right about that? Yeah. And it sets up basically a tiered system so that some larger growers and smaller growers. And this, by the way, this is the more one of the more interesting facets of this. This came with Governor Kemp's direct intervention. Um, it looked like this bill was going to to, to wither uh, and fail, um, and Kemp got directly involved uh, this week 
and uh, the sponsors, state representative, former state representative Alan Peak, mm-hmm. the families all kind of credited Kemp, who seems still very conflicted over this legislation. But yet, the Senate was a disaster on this issue and many issues. So, and, and one of the more <laughs> interesting parts of this was Bill Kauser, the governor's brother-in-law, going up in the Senate at 11, you know, 10 last night, um, talking about how he favored the Senate version. He withheld his signature from the uh, from the compromise uh, legislation, um, even though he was on that conference committee. Very interesting back and forth from the Senate and um, and in the House over that bill, but that ultimately passed. Well, I mean, I thought the Senate's version in so many ways was kind of a joke. I mean, you're going to rely on the University of Georgia and Fort uh, Valley, Fort Fort Valley, um, you know, to go against federal law and really risk some grant funding. And or, you know, all we heard throughout this entire argument was we don't want to turn into Colorado, but you'd be willing to allow a state like Colorado to provide the oil for you. Yeah, that's fascinating. Andre, in fact, that is one of the issues with this bill. The universities here, the state universities have to be very careful uh, because this is still a Schedule One substance. The federal government uh, can deny funding to universities that decide to get in this business. Yeah, I mean, and that's an important thing to kind of keep in mind. And that's where you could see the federal government kind of coming in. And, you know, we haven't heard what Bill Barr actually thinks about this. We know that under Jeff Sessions, Jeff Sessions fully intended um, to enforce uh, the schedule and, you know, really was going to try to sort of intervene to try to stop states that have actually already legalized marijuana. My bigger question for the state now that this passes, and I'm going to assume that Governor Kemp is going to sign it into law, is what do the regulations look like? Like exactly like how does, like what does this look like? That's a good question. I also, Brian, is there a lot of money to be had in this now. I don't know how many, seriously, I don't know how many licenses we now have in Georgia, uh, how many people will take advantage of this. So unless you broaden the market, oh, like say recreational marijuana, is is this a big money-making venture and people are going to be grabbing at the opportunity? What's your sense of that? People will be grabbing at the opportunity for for certain. And this is one thing that I said to Alan Peake, who was the sort of the father of this movement uh, going back four or five years ago. I would say Lori is the mother of the, of the movement. <laughs> She's been very involved in this, too. Uh, and I played my own role in Governor Deal's office. I was a I was kind of uh, Peake's guy. Well, you were the guy who was smoking marijuana <laughs> yeah, in the office. That you was, were the bum was brother. Figuring out brothers. how to get <laughs> yeah. meaner when the reporters came and asked you questions. <laughs> marijuana doesn't make you meaner. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think it's the best evidence that I was Doritos, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. I apologize. One thing I said to Peak last year because I was talking with him because I have taken a personal interest in this because I saw those ch- children come in and I saw parents whose kids were having a hundred seizures a day and were immobile, almost vegetable-like, and were running around the governor's office laughing because they had this oil. And boy, I saw it move Governor Deal, who's a seventy-something-year-old Southern Baptist. I mean, he had to go a long way on it. But I said to Pete last year, I am very concerned about anything that sets up a a government monopoly for for any grower because it's just going to create gazillionaires for a few people who get these licenses. And I don't think that I don't know if anybody's becoming gazillionaires in Colorado growing this and selling it. Maybe some people are, but it's a very robust market. And I mean, and in, there are, there's much competition driving down prices there. So I, I, I don't know how this is going to play out. Maybe Greg can, can illuminate me on that. But I am concerned about a few people making a lot of money, even though I am very interested in well, seeing this move l- forward. Let me first ask a question of Mary, of Mary Margaret. Uh, the sheriff very concerned that it, this is going to be the <clears throat> pave the way for recreational marijuana. How how realistic is it? In my view? Yeah. Uh, of course, I worked with law enforcement a long time when I was a judge, magistrate, court. I don't think it's realistic at all. You don't think the legislature at some point in the years ahead, the sessions ahead, is going to be entertaining making recreational marijuana legal in, in Georgia? In my opinion, no. Okay. Let's say five years, ten years. I don't see it happening. Okay. And, 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 but, wrong, but nobody in 2010 thought we were four years away from gay marriage. Right. You know, nobody did. Or five years away from medical marijuana. Yeah. yeah, or five. Yeah, exactly. Well, we've and, always had a medical mental, statute in Georgia. Twenty years, we just never used, used it. it. I will bet you anything. I mean, I, I will almost bet my house that by twenty twenty five, we have recreational marijuana in Georgia. Well, I mean, I think the thing that 
to keep in mind is that, you know, it may not even need to be decided at the state. That's true. Right? I mean, there's like a federal marriage, track you know. here as well where you have, you know, members of Congress who are now introducing laws to decriminalize. Even marijuana. Republicans. So, yeah, I mean, so, you know, I don't know that Georgia necessarily That's has to really, decide. The feds yeah. just decide this for us. Marijuana is not a cultural issue anymore, except in the sheriff's community. I mean, we passed hemp in that. They oppose that. That's a big agricultural step forward. I just uh, thought the sheriffs were a little bit out of touch with the real world, modern world. But they're, you know, they're an important group. They just... Well, also, you've got to think about all the drug seizure money that they're able to get because of these busts that are happening. So I'm sure there's a you know, thought in their mind about that as well. But I think what will be interesting to see also is, you know, this will be grown in warehouses. It won't be, you know, out in the fields. It will be very controlled. But the transportation of it. Or, you know, are we going to have trucks on the roads getting this to dispensaries? I mean, all of that regulation and all of those things have to be worked out. What was interesting to me mostly about it was a very concrete discussion, a real discussion that affected real people with some genuine policy issues. It was going to happen compared to 481, which was never going to become law, which was 100 percent theater. 481 was a heartbeat, heartbeat bill. Which had nothing to do but political bad acts. It was an f- interesting right. contrast. Greg, you can, we need you to jump in on this. Yeah, well, I was going to also mention the, the, the sort of about face from Republican leaders on this on this medical marijuana issue as well, because as Brian knows, Governor Deal was always very concerned about the federal implications of this and said it should be up to federal lawmakers. He allowed the medical marijuana program to go forward, but he, he said that um, the in-state cultivation distribution uh, should be a federal issue, not a state one. And Brian Kemp also had the same policy for a while until until he had his own sort of awakening in the middle of the campaign doing the runoff cycle. Well, let me give you a little background on this. When I first covered the story, the first ever story on the medical marijuana issue in Georgia, I'd interviewed um, the Cox family, Haley Cox, and Jenea is her mom. And I'd called Alan Peake because they lived in his district. And I said, he's like, I know what you're calling me about. The answer is absolutely no, no way, no how. And I just said to him, well, have you met Jenea and Haley yet? And he said, no, I'm, I'm meeting with them this afternoon. And I said, okay. So I said, I'll call you right after that meeting. And so after he met them, the three words out of his mouth, I didn't even say hello, was, I'm all in. Wow. So even Boy, he had he. to be persuaded. Yeah. yeah. He was there last night, by the way. Yeah. 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 That's, it's so cool because I, I am so proud of him. I, he is such a great Georgian. I mean, here is somebody who <laughs> saw kids in need and then dedicated his entire life yes. to fixing it. He said to me once in private, you know, I guess I can say it now, he was like, if I have to fly my plane to Colorado every week and bring home this this medication for these children if i have to go to prison i would go to prison i'm doing it so with i think with that spirit in mind the spirit of alan peak that is how the state pr- should proceed there's not going to be a problem with the federal government think of how many u.s senators now republican u.s senators represent states that have legalized marijuana yeah. they're going to defend the rights jeff sessions was a major hindrance he's gone uh, He's not going to be. We will. He will not be replaced by someone you know who who shares those viewpoints. Another interesting thing. I was. Ho- I'm hoping that we'll have at least a couple minutes at the end of the show to talk about the fact that Chicago's just elected the first African American female mayor of the city and also gay mayor, uh, which is fascinating. But what's interesting about her is one of the f- one of the first things she said in talking about Chicago's financial problems right now is that she'll look to legalize recreational marijuana in the city of Chicago. Well, I mean, so my reaction to that is mayors don't have a whole lot of power over this. They could sort of, you know, decriminalize it. Right, she it can decriminalize fines, it. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, I mean, you know, cities don't have the power well, that's, okay. that's the state of Illinois But that's the place that. she went. That's where she went in terms of thinking about the need for revenue in the city. Starting of Ch- the conversation. Chicago. Chicago. Now, we have several cities in Georgia that have taken initial steps to decriminalize, including yeah. Clarkston. Ted Terry Clarkston. did it up in Clarkston, mayor yeah. of Clarkston. Um, and city of Atlanta. Atlanta. City yeah, of Atlanta, Atlanta has been uh, and looking. At, have they passed that? In, yeah. in Atlanta at this point? Is the ordinance passed? Okay, oh, it just yeah. wasn't completely certain. Uh, let's do so this. Let's so so in, challenge the federal government. Come on, bring it on. Bring it on. And, and, and they're not going to do anything. I mean, there are much bigger issues than the rest of the country than this and what we're doing in Georgia, which is a pill that can't get anybody high. 
And also oil. The, oil. 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 Also, the state has sovereign immunity if, if the state's the one bringing the, the drug, drug in, in. And that's why yeah. the bill was written that way. All right, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. Greg, uh, as we go to break, help me tease the next segment of the show. What's another bill we should look at when we come back from our break? Well, we can talk about uh, what Representative Oliver mentioned earlier, the abortion bill. Let's do that. We'll talk about uh, HB 481. You're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Financial contributions from listeners like you are not the only gifts that keep GPB on the air. In fact, many listeners have already chosen to donate a used vehicle to GPB. We'll pick up your vehicle for free and send you the paperwork for your taxes. Get started today. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org cars. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org cars. And thanks. The acting head of the FAA, Daniel Elwell, says pilots should have known how to override the software system linked to two deadly crashes of the Boeing 737 MAX. Some pilots say he's wrong. I really can't agree with much of what acting uh, director uh, Elwell stated. I'm Ari Shapiro. The debate over pilot training and whether that was a major factor in the crashes. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. It's 4 till 7 today on GPB and gpbnews.org. Uh, we're back. Uh, the legislative legislative session ended, of course, at midnight last night. Before we talk about 481, which was certainly the most consequential bill of the session, I think everybody would agree. A uh, couple of quick things. Uh, Greg, there was an effort. Uh, Representative Efstration talked about it on our show from the Capitol yesterday to try to delay the next MARTA expansion vote in Gwinnett County, uh, even though Charlotte Nash says we're getting it right away. The, the, the Republican chair of the county, uh, they wanted the Republican delegation up there wanted to uh, delay that vote until at least 2026. Six. Yeah, all six Republicans from what used to be, I don't know, a 15, what used to be a hefty Republican-led uh, majority in Gwinnett County, which is now a minority, um, signed on to that legislation. And I was at a very tense press conference between the with the Democrats and Republicans from Gwinnett where there was a face-to-face confrontation between one of the Republicans and one of the Democrats over that bill. Uh, that went over like a lead balloon. I well, think that- one of the things I think is interesting about that, Mary Margaret, is because the Republicans in the Gwinnett delegation are now in the minority— they could not pass this as local legislation. They had to turn it over to the entire uh, House, which, of course, is dominated by Republicans. But the Republicans in the House did not back them up, and the bill failed. The DeKalb County has had that experience with this uh, statewide bill to create overage, stepping over the local delegation. I think every Republican in Gwinnett County is vulnerable. And I think this was a political flag. I don't think it was a realistic effort. Uh, The business community and the real leaders of Democrat and Republican House and Senate, I believe, understand transit is an asset for our state and must happen, whether it was the rural transit that failed last night based on the Senate or whether it was the uh, the regional ATL from last year. It has to move forward. Gwinnett Republicans are very vulnerable, and they did a couple of things that waved the flag. We're still we're still viable, but it's uh, it's hard on them right now. And the results for transit in this session were somewhat mixed. I think is the fairest way to say it, Lori. Well, you had mentioned you know the House Republicans did not back them up. That's because yeah. most House Republicans believe in transit. Yeah. Exactly. And they know that it works. So I agree with um, Mary Margaret. But the other thing is, you know, <laughs> the Republicans in Gwent. Gwinnett know what's coming. They know as soon as this gets on the ballot in a general election, they will have MARTA and they will have transit. So when you have a 17 percent turnout, that does not speak for the rest of the county. That's right. And look, here's what I would say to them, to my friends. Those are some. You were involved in the Gwinnett expansion, right? Yeah. Lori and I both. uh, Okay, I didn't know the both of you, but I knew you were. All right. And uh, this is what I would say to the Republicans. You know, the reason why they had it in a special election in March as a standalone issue uh, which guaranteed low turnout was there was a fear that it would drive Democratic turnout mm-hmm. and hurt some of the Republican incumbents in the delegation. Well, Abrams won Gwinnett in a landslide. With, For, by 14 points. Yeah, that's, that's a huge margin mm-hmm. in, in Gwinnett. And we still lost some Republican House seats. And what did we find out in March during that special election? This doesn't drive Democratic turnout. It drives Republican yeah, turnout. it really did. Who That's fired on them? 
I mean, it backfired. It, I mean, maybe it should have been on the ballot. Maybe Kemp would have had a much better showing in Gwinnett, which would have helped him have a much better showing statewide because the county's so big. Andra, it, it appears, I mean, look, Gwinnett County after 2020 is going to be lucky to have a few Republicans left, isn't it? Well, I mean, I think that that's part of it. Um, I think there's also the issue of making sure that an issue that is just a sort of like bread and butter as how one gets around and gets to work is something that you get as much buy-in as possible. But then also just sort of the bare naked sort of political power grab to try to say that we're not going to talk about this for seven years. Right. Um yeah, I mean, you that you can only de- delay the inevitable so long. And so I think the thing that I would be worried about long term is what political price one pays for such a strong handed move that just looks so blatantly obvious that it's just trying yeah. to delay something that a lot dumb. of people actually want and would need. It looks dumb. I want to I want to before we turn to uh, 481, uh, Mary Margaret, a, a, another big milestone of the session for good or ill, depending on your point of view, is the election uh, legislation, which uh, uh, will put in place new voting machines, $150 million in borrowing to get those machines in place. They are not going to be hand-marked ballots, right? They're called, what, ballot marking computers that generate Spit a pa- paper trail of some sort. It's not a $150 million price tag. It's more like a half a billion dollar price When you tag. talk about the ongoing upkeep for the machines, right? These technology machine companies, they make money on the maintenance and the management as much as the purchase. It was an unfortunate discussion that wasn't as realistic as I would want it to be in terms of respecting that people don't trust their voting operations. People who have always voted are all of a sudden very cognizant that something is wrong here. We're in a fast-moving technology. There are not many vendors that are able to produce 28,000 machines. And whether you took the hand-marked ballot position or the machine computer-generated position, they were still going to have machines. It was just going to cost less than half for the hand-marked I think these machines are going to have to be replaced in so few years, you know, five to eight years, that it was a bad purchase decision. It's a complicated technological issue, but more important to me in this debate that was not positive is that people's view that their vote is not being counted was not respected. And the federal court, as we know, didn't think our vote was being respected. So what fascinatingly happened is that the Republicans, and this I credit Barry Fleming a lot with the intelligence of this, picked up Democratic vo- Democratic bills that were introduced uh, on way management of absentee ballots and provisional ballots and absentee ballots were counted. He did make some corrections in he problems. All that- the Democratic bills and except same-day registration voting and put them in a less a, a format into the real bill that protected the Republicans a little bit from the litigation that will come. Why are we so gung-ho? Greg, I think the public has expressed itself repeatedly in your polling, certainly, that they want hand-marked ballots. I, to this day, and if somebody at this table will tell me the answer, I would love this I don't understand, first, why this became partisan, and second, why the majority that voted for this are so gung-ho to have more computers. I mean, I'd say to the first part of the question, it became partisan because of, of, of last year's election between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp revolved around voting rights and voting. Well, that I understand, right, but, 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 it, but why it, machines hand-marked. as opposed why, to hand Why did Democrats, maybe I should ask you, yeah. why did Democrats kind right. of latch on to the hand mark? Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you why, but this is my opinion. People did not believe the machine was accurately counting their vote. Okay, but then- But more, the machine counts the hand marked ones. The machine count, and that was part of the technological debate about how does it count it? Does it count the hand mark or does it a barcode? And that really got so complicated that it was hard. <laughs> But I will tell you that it is a different view, and this is a Democratic view, than when I started politics, that people don't trust the machines. How do they do vote? Yeah, trust. go ahead, Andre. So part of it may also be that there's a National Academy of Science report that came out that actually came out in favor of machines that read handmarked ballots. So it was very clear about the let's not do Internet voting type of thing. They were like, that's yeah. too, there, there are too many vulnerabilities and the potential for hacking. And so... You know, I think it does fit a narrative about which party sort of likes empiricism and likes science better than the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it fell along those traditional stereotypes. Interesting. Lines. Brian, um, 
that it does strike me that the learning curve, we have to have these machines in place for 2020. So first of all, the bids have to be let. We're already moving forward before with that. Before the bill was even signed. Before the bill was signed. But but now they have to start talking to vendors. They've got to buy the machines. They've got to bring them in, put them in place. They've got to train election workers. And they got to train voters on what difference it. So there's a lot to do in about a year and a half. So in a pragmatic way, I can see how you could make an argument that a machine that is at least somewhat similar to the way Georgians have been voting for the last 15 years on on these screens, I can understand from a pragmatic uh, uh, place, maybe this makes some sense, but I still don't quite understand why the legislature was determined not to do what the public has said over and over they want. No, I I do think a transition period is is something to be considered. Uh, training the public to use these things is a, a major... Yeah. Uh, I remember the process we went through when Kathy uh, Cox put the machines and put the computers in place in the first place. No, I congratulate Barry Fleming, as uh, Representative Oliver did. Uh, I think that it was a well-done process. I think Georgia ended up in the right place. Uh, I hope that whatever machine we get allows for some flexibility in the future if we change how we vote going forward. Like if we were to do something like move to rank voting, which I would love to see because it would eliminate runoffs, which would save taxpayers a lot of money and prevent us having to uh, have these awful, miserable runoff periods. Nine that, weeks. Nine, nine weeks of hell that, that threaten us having a U.S. senator that enters Congress after the start of Congress. I mean, it's crazy, the system we have now. And so I hope that it's got that sort of flexibility. I, I do like Barry very much. He was very smart and strategic, but I don't want to go overboard in saying that he was fair about this. I mean, he entered, he was strategically smart on behalf of the Republican leadership. He never talked to the Democrats whose bills he took. He never included them in the language. He was all after the fact, oh, by the way, I took your bill, which is kind of a bad form in my view, but strategically it protects the Republicans, takes some issues, litigation issues off the table. You keep saying, why did this, you say this all the time, Bill, why did this become a partisan? Yeah. You and I are old and we remember the bad parts of handwritten. And that's a, that's a gone technology. That's a gone technology. Modern hand marked Ballots are safer, are better. We're not dealing with the Quitman County probate judge that put him in alphabetical. <laughs> Jimmy Carter election, Meg. <laughs> I don't know. I'm thinking about hanging chads too. Yeah, but, but hey, on the I'm, other I'm, hand, hold. I know that's. I know that's different. But <laughs> on the other hand, um, with these new machines that come, uh, I'm hearing that you know, you you go in and you vote like you normally do, and then they they spit out who you voted for, and then you put that into a machine, and then you spit out a barcode. Well, that doesn't help me. That doesn't help me determine, like, are you sure my vote counted if I'm right. looking at a barcode? Does the machine read the barcode exactly. correctly or not? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think here's going to be sort of just like a practical issue in order to deal with that. They usually don't want you on your phone when you're going to go vote. On the other hand, this would be a time where I might tell people, take a picture take of that oh. receipt before you send it in so that if there are any issues and you want to sort of show, here's how I did it, here's how I did it. But the problem is whether or not they would actually enforce the rules about putting your phone so you want an amendment while you're voting. Uh, nullifying the no selfie law. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have any sense of how many states in the United States use hand-marked ballots these this days? This would be the first system that is in all voting precincts of a state there's a few states that have a few precincts here and there. A lot of states still go county by county. So one county might use one system. Another county might have a hand, hand mark system. What a disaster. When Barry said that this, uh, this is the way that it uses nationally everywhere, everywhere. Well, what he really meant is that there's some county in hoo-ha state that where it used, you know, it, it was not exactly an honest discussion. Do we have some issue with uh, potential conflict of interest here in terms of uh, uh one of uh, Brian Kemp's uh, senior staffers and the, the company um, that he used to represent. Yeah, that's part of the, uh, in, in, in one of his um, senior staffers worked for ESS, I think was the name, um, and he was a lobbyist there. Um, and they're going to be one of the companies probably um, uh, jockeying really hard for this They're going to win contract. It. It's a vendor bid. Wait, wait. I cannot imagine Lori Geary, given all the attention that has been focused on, on, on this if that company gets this bid, the howls are going. I mean, I would think they're automatically disqualified, much to their dismay. Well, but 
as Mary Margaret pointed out, there are very few companies that can provide this type of equipment. Okay. So, I mean, look, anything is possible. I mean, and I think sort of the adage here will be to the victor goes the spoils. And so, yeah, people are going to f- cry foul, but it's just a question of sort of how much that minority actually has any power to be able to do anything. About and well, it. we should note the bill has not yet been signed into law, but they've already not only have they let the the, RF, the, R, the request for proposals, the RFPs, um, but also had a first meeting with vendors and a handful showed up. All right, Brian, if you were, uh, if this were the deal administration, first term, you were in there with the, uh, with Governor Deal, uh, would you say to him, Governor, look, uh, this has been an issue. We can't possibly give this contract uh, to to your <laughs> to one of to a guy who's got a potential conflict of interest on this here. It it would really depend on if I had a deal to get money on the back end when I left the administration. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. And we, I, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, look. Yeah. <laughs> Moses, you people. Um, uh, uh, of course, that's something that, that has to be considered. But I think they haven't run from that. They haven't hidden from that. No. I think that transparency is important. I think if at the end of the day we see what was being offered and what price were, is being paid, that the public should be able to have a sense of comfort and confidence in the system that we pick. But here's the issue. You can't monetize proximity. And so, yeah, okay, we could argue, of course, they lowballed me on the deal. It's just a question of optics. And so I would put a higher price on sort of the optics of this not looking shady as all get out. Right. Um, and so there's still going to be a lot of people who are going to be really right. upset about this. You get the last word, Greg, before we break. We mentioned what would you do with Governor Deal administration. Governor Deal did not have a former opponent who was criticizing every single move that he made, where Stacey Abrams with a national profile and a national pulpit will be doing that and would, would relentlessly criticize oh, him. Oh, yeah, years. that will be ripe for for her. All right, look, let's get a break out of the way. I've cleared the way so we can talk about 481, as we've said many times on this show, without question, one of the most consequential pieces of legislation passed in a Georgia legislature in, I think it's fair to say, many decades. So we'll do that when we come back from the break. This is Political Rewind. On the next Fresh Air, the rise of white supremacy after the Civil War and Reconstruction, when white Southerners found ways to roll back new rights for African Americans. A talk with historian Henry Louis Gates, Jr. That's when the ideology of white supremacy as we know it was formulated, and we are still in the grip of that heinous philosophy. His new book is Stony the Road. Join us. Fresh Air this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Kalina Bowler, host of the GPB podcast, The Credits. I've worked for years in Georgia's film and television industry. And believe me, Yollywood has changed so much. On my show, we go on set to meet the people working to bring art to life. Subscribe for free at gpb.org forward slash podcast. We're back on Political Rewind. We got a full house, a great full house. Mary Margaret Oliver is here. Brian Robinson, Andre Gillespie is with us. Lori Geary, Greg Bluestein uh, also. All right, uh, real quick, and then we'll move on to 481. The Senate is still tied up with trying to pass or maybe not pass the bill that will give relief to any number of states affected by natural disasters, not the least of which is Georgia, where the farmers uh, in South Georgia have been hurt so badly by Hurricane Michael. The president is still attacking Puerto Rico, doesn't want to give him any more money. Democrats are attacking the president. And in the meantime, planting season is upon us and we're not getting anywhere, Greg Bluestein. And there's farmers in South Georgia who face generational damage, who are filing for bankruptcy, who are in uh, basically chaos in parts of South Georgia. And Republicans are getting, and Democrats are getting increasingly frustrated over the inaction. All right, real quick, Brian, so we can talk 481. Here's what would happen to Republicans if the shoes were on the other foot. Every news outlet in the country would be calling Stacey Abrams and saying, are you for Puerto Rico or for Georgia? Put her on the spot. She's considering running for U.S. Senate. Where does she stand on this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think there are arguments to be made on both sides of this thing. I don't doubt that for a second, so I'm glad you brought that up. All right, let's talk 481. Mary Margaret Oliver, uh, you were there throughout this entire process as a member of the legislature. How do you come away from what happened on the heartbeat abortion bill? Extremely sad. 
extremely regretful that Georgia now is again a bad image nationally. Extremely sad for the women who were called baby killers like I was. And uh, many, many were you called that? Really? Yes. Tell, tell, I think you have to tell us where were you called that on my social media. Okay, go ahead. Um, it's a very, very sad, very dramatic, very significant um, day. I don't think I've ever experienced a day in politics like that vote day. The differences, uh, what this issue brought, the the theater, the imagery, the red hooded women, the uh, disaster of the idiocy of this bill where the census taker is deciding whether you're pregnant or not, where the state abortion law is trying to change federal tax law and federal census law. It was a overreaching, ill-conceived, unenforceable piece of legislation that will not become law. But what it message it sends on behalf of, I think, who is I, I do place Brian Kemp at the energy, the center of what happened. It's a dramatic example of the difference between Brian Kemp and Nathan Deal. And it is a disaster politically. If we move away from just the emotion, the feelings, the bad policy, the idiocy, something that will never become law, then you look at the politics of it. The energy that's coming from this freshman class of Democrats, predominantly women, the energy that's coming from the demonstrations is angry. It's even more angry than after Trump in this one issue, this one area. I want to, I want to ask Brian Robinson a question that, that Representative Holler just ra- raised. Um, when Representative Oliver said this was a dramatic difference between um, Kemp and Governor Deal, what, would, you, would your former boss, Governor Deal, do you think he would have sidestepped this entire anti-abortion debate? You know, I will say in 2010, when you're running through the primary for the first time and you have competition, he did take a very conservative stance on abortion. He did sign the then Georgia Right to Life pledge, which was the no exceptions pledge. Now, granted, the other Republicans in the race did as well. Now, that said, if you had asked him in 2010, do you support religious freedom legislation? He would have said yes. And, of course, we know six years later when on his desk he did veto it. One thing that's different here is when Governor Deal came into office, we had double-digit unemployment. The We were cutting government spending still uh, to the bone. It had already been cut dramatically. So all eyes were on the economy. And uh, and, and like one of the side issues there, social issues, was, was immigration, which, which which plays into the economy, too. So social— And he took about as conservative position on immigration as you possibly could in that first it, term. And in, but, in, many, in many ways, though, that was the, the conservative okay. thing Deal did. Okay. So, this is what Kemp did. All right. So, in other words, he doesn't want to answer that question. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, no, no. All right. Very quickly. But, he, he, um, he did shy away from, from these, these type of issues. Yeah. There is the point. But I, I also think his— um, his out would have been, we look through this legislation, we know that this will be fought in the federal courts, and so I cannot sign something that will probably be shot. It, it does. Right? Andra, go ahead. So, you know, we have to look at what's substantive in this bill and what is symbolic in this bill. And so a lot of this was symbolic, and so we understand why Governor Kemp is probably going to sign this into law, because he wants to keep a campaign promise, and he wants to sort of demonstrate to the right flank of his base that he's pro-life, right? So then it becomes a question of... there. There's always an element of substance and symbolic politics and and, and, and symbol and, and substantive politics. So what are sort of the, you know, what are the externalities that one gets as a result of, of this particular bill? Um, so you have this bill that is substantive in terms of the restrictions that if implemented would actually, you know, be, you know, would be really serious. But this is probably going to end up, it's going to get enjoined. Um, and then we would see where this goes sort of in the long run in terms of the Supreme Court. Um, And so there's the issue of, well, you know, for pro-life people, this could sort of lead to dismantling Roe versus Wade or uh, on the pro-choice side, the other parts of this bill in terms of trying to redefine citizenship that could like cause 14th Amendment problems that would get this shot down in other in, in, you know, in in other ways that's possible that could actually end up making us look really stupid. Um, 
It's just the not thinking through things that I think is actually really important. And even if you are pro-life, do you want to take that risk in terms of putting forward something that has all of this other stuff in there that isn't actually directly about whether or not you're trying to protect the unborn? I think that's the bigger issue. And we still have to have this larger sort of conversation, you know, and I've said this before as a pro-life person, what are we doing about contraception? What are we doing to prevent unplanned pregnancies? And what are we doing to take care of children? I think the Republican leadership from the House, the governor, and the Senate, particularly the governor and the Senate, lost control of this issue. They allowed Ed Setzler, uh, who's not the appropriate face, to be lecturing Sponsor the bill. on their menstrual cycle timings from the well. That's not what the Republican leadership wanted. I don't think the Republican leadership wanted a bill that's this extreme, that is this out of the norm, that is this un dumb. It, it's not a bill that can be sustained or admired. Right? Brian, the governor did try to pull a, put it to a stop to this bill by calling for the so-called trigger, trigger law, which would have turned it over to the Supreme Court. If the Supreme Court rules Roe uh, is unconstitutional, then the state does something. But I think Mary Margaret makes an important point. They sort of lost control. Yeah. But, but but the governor did step out immediately on the day that that happened, on the day that the Setzer bill emerged, which was sort of in the wake of the AJC story about Ralston's uh, delaying of cases. Uh, that that sort of circumscribed the speaker's ability to stop that bill from coming to the floor, which is an interesting sort of side note to, to all of this. Oh. And, and and so that allowed the sort of the right flank to have a much more conservative bill. And like I know this is political rewind, not personal conscience rewind. But let's take the politics out of it and just and just think that maybe Brian Kemp is someone who is a religious conservative. He says you have to live your values, and that includes making sure we're open for business for everyone. That includes women. In other words, to answer the argument, this is bad for business. He says he does. And I don't think there's any question he believes. He he believes he's protecting human life. There's something to be said for that. And that's what he told me last night in an interview. Oh, is that you? Yeah. And and he, and he can be very plain spoken. He said, I did what I said I'd do. He said, no one should be shocked by me supporting this legislation because I promised it left and right on the campaign trail. Andre is dying to get yes. in here. So, and then I mean, Lori. So, I mean, you know, there's this descriptive representation question here and the fact that you had pro-life Republican female lawmakers who came out and said, look, this is stupid. You've got all this extra stuff in here that is going to make this really and deeply problematic. Like these people should have been at the forefront of helping to craft this legislation. It doesn't mean, Representative Oliver, that you would have gone along with it or would have agreed with it. But the fact that you have men making these types of decisions when, frankly, this is not their lived experience, they wouldn't even come close to thinking about this. It sort of shows yet that you're not even listening to your own constituents on this. And I also think if you take a look at the bigger picture, it is where we are about every single issue in this country. We're so far extreme. So in New York, you have a law that, you know, you're allowed to to kill babies up until the time of birth. And in Vermont, they're talking about, you know, killing after. And you heard those uncomfortable words from the governor to Georgia. I mean, this is where we are. Like the 20 weeks was maybe perhaps more middle of the road. But here we are on the absolute extremes. This will cost the Republican seats. This will energize a, a women moderate base Absolutely. and a liberal base. And it was managed poorly by the political leadership Republicans. And you did have a mini revolt of Republicans, not a widespread one, but a mini revolt of Republicans. Five is a lot. Five is a lot, Some, you know, for a big divisive issue like this. And, many, and several of them sped on the record, I didn't want to vote for this bill because oh, it's unconstitutional. All said privately they didn't. Yeah, but, but several on the record th- because though, it's unconstitutional. Even though they're pro-life, they told me this just goes too far. Yeah, I heard that from an awful lot of people as well, which is very interesting. That met, That's why I say in some ways this got out of control. Uh, if they'd been offered an alternative that wasn't quite this extreme, perhaps like the trigger bill, maybe something good. All right. We are completely out of time for today's show. Mary Margaret Oliver, Brian Robinson, Andre Gillespie, Greg Bluestein, And I say you last, Laurie Geary, because in introducing you, I failed to once again 
say, you're the host of the Georgia game <laughs> on uh, Fox 5 on Sunday mornings at nine uh, at 8.30. Then. What I love about that is people should watch Lori because she's great. And then you can watch Political Rewind on GPB TV <laughs> at 9. Uh, that's it for us today. We're back on Friday. Uh, Teresa Tomlinson is here. Eric Tannenblatt is here. So is Stacey Evans. I'm Bill Vigat. See you on Friday.